Hey everybody, welcome to I Can Steal That, the true crime podcast that's never too heavy. I'm your host, Pete Stegmeyer. So thank you guys so much. First of all, Happy New Year uh, to those who celebrate. I'm super excited about this. Like, I just want to thank you guys before we start, um, because this past year has been absolutely incredible, and I owe all of that to you guys. We hit uh, we hit iTunes charts in six continents, which is unbelievable. We also reached tens of thousands of listeners, which I, I I can't even like put into words how much that means to me. So thank thank you each and every one of you for liking the podcast, subscribing, sharing, uh, telling friends about it. Like it, it all adds up to this awesome year that, uh, that we were able to have with the podcast. And I can't thank you enough. And we also had a couple people over the past couple of days sign up for our Patreon. So I'll be giving you guys a shout out at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for that. Your support really helps the show grow and become better. Uh, we're not going to have a guest today. Uh, tried to do one, uh, but I kept running into tef- technical difficulties, so I'm, I'm flying solo on this one, and that's okay. I'm excited about this episode. Uh, we are going to be talking about one of the most iconic scams ever. Like, if I if I say scam, this is probably the scam that you're thinking of. So I, I'm really happy to share it with you guys. This today we're going to be talking about the Nigerian print scam. And before we get into like. I'm going to give you guys an example of the biggest, most successful version of the scam ever, and it's going to blow your mind. But before we get into the big scam, let's talk a little bit about the basics of the scam and how it typically works. The Nigerian print scam is a modern variation of what's called an advanced fee scam, which is itself a modernized version of the Spanish prisoner scam. As the name implies, The advanced fee scam consists of somebody contacting a potential victim, a Mark, or sometimes like a Dave or a Larry. That's a terrible joke. I I try every episode to write one truly awful joke, and luckily for you guys, got it out in like the first five minutes. So the rest of it should be smooth sailing. Anyways, so somebody's going to reach out to a potential victim known as a Mark. And they're going to tell them that they've discovered a huge sum of money somehow, but they can't access it alone. Sometimes it's a soldier in Iraq found a stash of gold and they can't bring it into the country by themselves because, you know, it's hard for a soldier to carry a bunch of money or to carry a bunch of gold bricks without raising suspicion. Uh, Sometimes, like, there's all, all sorts of variations for it. However... They're in luck because with a little bit of financial assistance from the victim and a bit of daring do on the on the scammer's part, the vast fortune can be had and split between both parties, usually to the tune of twenty uh, of ten to forty percent, which I think just makes it sound more plausible because if somebody said that they found twenty million dollars in like a Swiss bank account and they were going to share ten million of that with me like they were going to give me half for you know, letting them transfer it into my account, like I would immediately think that's suspicious. But if they're like, hey, like we'll give you 10%, like we'll give you $2 million to to bring this in. Like that sounds like more reasonable to me. Uh, it still sounds outlandish, but I think that makes it like bases it in reality a little bit more um, because people will believe, I think it's easier for people to believe that somebody will do something shady and try to undercut them, then somebody will do something shady and then be very altruistic. 
And the Spanish prisoner scam was basically the same thing as well, but it usually involved somebody reaching out to a victim, stating that a wealthy Spanish royal had been imprisoned. And they can't like they can't just like go to the uh, to their guards and jailers and say, you know, I'm Prince Marco, uh, because that would end badly. Like they would get killed or some something prevents that from from being a, a real option. And so they need to get them out discreetly. And the best way to do that is to raise enough money to bribe the guards so that the prisoner can be released. And in exchange, the prince, once they're out of prison. Uh, is going to provide money and sometimes like the hand of a, a beautiful female relative to marry off to the person that paid the bail. And so the, the bones are, are always going to be pretty much the same. And the most common variation of the modern advance fee scam, the Nigerian prince scam, typically finds an exiled prince trying to reclaim his family fortune or trying to move it out of the country because of like a, a looming civil war or something like that. They'll say, I'm you know, I'm from this like small African republic, and there's rebels, and we're fleeing the country. So, let me transfer three hundred million dollars to you, and I'll give you ten percent, something like that, right? But now, because and this this game has been around for for centuries, and even the Nigerian prince ver- version of it has been around for decades. Uh, they actually used to do like mass letter campaigns to, to different companies. Like they would pretend to be Exxon, Exxon mobile and say, we found a bunch of oil under this person's land. We need you to wire us the money so that we can buy the land and then we'll drill it and give you, you know, a wealthy sum. And now in like the modern age, we have email. And this means that the Nigerian print scam can be done in volume. And it is. And this means that they can send emails out to 50 million people, like with the click of a button, asking for smaller sums of money, uh, sometimes a few hundred bucks, sometimes a few thousand, uh, sometimes even tens of thousands. It, it depends on you know how they're trying to run the racket. But because the scams are going out to so many people, they're insanely lucrative. Because most people have common sense, right? Like if you see an email from a Nigerian prince you're going to immediately know that it's bogus. But there's also a lot of dum-dums out there, right? And so let's do the math on this. If you if you send out an email to 50, 50 million people and half of 1% gets tricked into sending $1,000, that's 250,000 people and that's $250 million. Insane, right? Usually the numbers end up smaller than that, but there are a lot of a lot of like studies and things like that that show that like your average Nigerian print scammer is making probably close to on the very low end seven hundred thousand dollars a year, and it's it's cheap to do it too. Like you can you can go and buy a uh, like a server in Russia. Uh, where they're not going to do extradition and they don't care what what you're using their computers for, uh, and you can buy email lists. Like Marriott was recently hit for they had like 500 million customer records stolen. That's 500 million email addresses. That's that's the scenario I laid out just now times 10. You know that's 2.5 billion dollars. Like if you got half of a percent to send you a thousand, so there's a real like there's a real 
you know, drive, like a real impetus for people to, to try to pull off the scheme. And that's why you see it so many times. But like, usually, like I said, like you're not going to get $250 million, but if you're good and you're lucky, sometimes you can make even more money than that from one victim. So that's that's going to be our our big scam. Let's let's talk about this because it's amazing. It's actually the third largest financial fraud in history, and it was done by one guy and a couple accomplices, but mostly one guy. So this is actually the the Nigerian print scam is uh, basically basically exactly what Emmanuel uh, Wu did, like. He was a Nigerian man, Emmanuel Wood, uh, spelt N-W-U-D-E. And Wood actually worked as the director of the Union Bank in Nigeria, which is like, it's a big bank. It's It'd be like the Nigerian equivalent of like being a director at Chase Bank. So a very high level position. And this gave him access to classified information and unmatched familiarity with the banking system. And he was going to take full advantage of that knowledge and also the fact that he can like write letterheads and he knows how, exactly how banks work and he is classified. Like he's, he's in the perfect position to pull off a scam like this. And so in 1995, Wood actually impersonates the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, their Federal Reserve. Uh, so the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria would be like the president of our Federal Reserve. So they're Jerome Powell. Uh, and this guy's name was Paul Agwuma. And so posing as Paul Agwuma, Wood reaches out to the manager of a Brazilian bank, uh, a bank called Banco Noroeste. And the manager of this bank was a guy named Nelson Sakaguchi. So while posing as Aguma, or Agwuma, Wood tells him that Nigeria was working to build a brand new airport in Abuja which is the capital of Nigeria, and that they were seeking funding to help facilitate construction proposals. So if Sakaguchi helped them secure the funding, he would earn a 10% commission once the project was completed. Of course, the project was expected to take several years, like just for the approval process, uh, several years to complete. And like after that, it would take several more years for them to, to build the airport. And because Wu knew the kind of like he dealt with like real world deals like this all the time, he he knew the requisite paperwork. And so he made up letterhead for the Central Bank of Nigeria and he created uh, all sorts of bogus documents to help legitimize the deal. So proposal documents, financial tables, contracts and non-disclosure agreements because he didn't want, you know, that Nigeria couldn't let people know that they were building a building an airport. So he's keeping it hush hush, which is genius. And Sakaguchi like looks at this and he, he thinks the deal is too good to pass up, which is another red flag. And so Sakaguchi and Banco Noroeste pay $242 million. And $191 million of that is in cash. The rest is going to be accrued via interest. And so he goes and gives him that money and wires it to an account in the Caymans. And over the next two to three years, the money just sits in Wood's accounts 
in the Cayman Islands. And every once in a while, Wood would provide updates about the approval process. He'd be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this judge is being like extra finicky or we need to like add these requirements to it. It's going to take a little bit longer, but we'll get there. Uh, just basically enough to to make it look like he hadn't disappeared. And it's impossible to know for sure how long Wood would have been able to keep this gravy train rolling. But in 1997, uh, Banco Noroeste was acquired by a Spanish bank, uh, banking giant Santander. And while, while Santander was like working on the acquisition paperwork, like they decided to do due diligence. And Banco Noroeste didn't do due diligence. Uh, their due diligence when they were assessing all this information that uh, that Wood had given them, like they didn't look into anything. Like they never like sent somebody to Nigeria to like see the site of like the proposed airport. Like they didn't do anything. They just took this guy at his word. And Santander, like they do a lot of dirty money dealing. Like they launder money for the cartels. They're a really gross bank, but they do their due diligence. And for a bank like Banco Noroeste, it's more like don't diligence. Uh, okay, that might be the worst joke. I don't know if that's worse than the Mark joke, but you get to this episode. Happy New Year. Anyways, so while they're doing their due diligence, Santander discovers that a whole 40%, two-fifths of Banco Noroeste's capital is unaccounted, or unaccounted for, that it had been wired to the Cayman Islands sitting in accounts. And after interest, this like this pile of money uh, is discovered to be $330 million now. Absolutely insane. And so Santander launches an investigation immediately. But it takes them over seven years to arrest Wood and his accomplices. And so finally, in 2004, they get taken before the Abuja High Court. And they're charged with 86 counts of fraudulent advance fees and 15 counts of bribery. And the second that uh, the second that Wood hears bribery, he tries to bribe the officials. He's like, "Oh, you bribery?" And they're like, "Yeah." And he's like, "I could do that." And they're like, "No, like you did do that. That's that's why you're here." But he's able to like make some backroom deals and bribe officials, and the case actually gets dismissed by a judge. And the judge, the judge dismissed it on basically on the basis that because the crime didn't technically occur in Abuja, that the court didn't have jurisdiction. And so the defendants are super excited about this. Uh, they try to walk out of the building and they're immediately arrested again. And this time they're moved to Lagos uh, and the trial is going to take place there. And so Wood and his uh, Wood and his accomplices try the same thing. Like, okay, well, let's just bribe this judge. But it didn't work. Like, they they offered them like basically an insultingly low number of, or amount of money. Like, I think they offered them like seventy five thousand dollars, which when you've got three hundred and thirty million, it's not a whole lot. And so the judge immediately denies it. And he tries to bribe him again with like a higher amount and the judge refuses that. And so then mysteriously, uh, the court is evacuated for a bomb scare. But eventually, like they, they sniff it out. It doesn't take too long. And the trial starts going and everybody pleads not guilty. 
But then the prosecution brings out their star witness, uh, Sakaguchi, and he testifies directly and lays out everything that had been done. And soon after, all of the defendants plead guilty in exchange for lighter sentences. They're like, yeah, like that's exactly what happened. Our bad. And that honestly kind of works. So uh, one of Wood's accomplices got four years in prison. And Wood himself was sentenced. He got found guilty of five charges. And each of those charges carried five-year sentence. So he got five concurrent sentences for a total of 25 years in prison. He was fined $10 million and all of his assets were seized. Ultimately, and so in 2005, he goes to jail. In 2006, he gets out of jail. Like it was basically an extended stay motel for him. And he leaves and pretty much immediately after getting out of jail, he files a lawsuit to reclaim some of the assets that he had claimed. Uh, He said that some of the money he had he had like basically earned before he committed that crime and the Nigerian government like goes with it and like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And to date he's recovered at least $52 million. And after his release from, from that sentence, like he gets his $52 million and then he goes to a town called Ugbene and he runs for office and becomes named president general of Ugbene. So basically the mayor of this town. And you'd think that he would just like kind of chill and enjoy his money and enjoy being the mayor and, you know, have some tropical drinks and just kind of live life. But he doesn't do that uh, because he's not a good person. Instead, uh, he leads a mob of over 200 people to a neighboring village uh, called Ukpo. And this mob of 200 people shows up and like just starts wrecking stuff like very similar actually to what happened on Wednesday at the Capitol. And a security guard actually gets killed by this mob. And so Wood gets arrested again in 2016 and he's charged with murder and terrorism and attempted murder for other guards that were injured, but didn't succumb to their wounds. Uh, but currently uh, he is out on bail Uh, So he went to jail for a little bit, got out on bail, and he is still serving as president general of Ugbene. So sometimes crime does pay is the takeaway from that. But I do want to say, like, that's going to do it for this episode. Like, this is a little bit shorter of an episode, uh, but I thought it was a really important one to, to try to get out and a good one to start the year with. Uh, Again, I want to thank all of you. Thank you so much for helping us find a bigger audience every single week. Thank you for, you know, telling people about the podcast. And if you like the podcast, uh, please continue to support us. Like, tell friends about it. Leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this for the first time and you like it, hit that subscribe button or that follow button so that we can come find you every single week with new episodes. We've got some amazing guests coming up this year. Like, There's a couple of them that I can't say yet, but very, very excited about them. And it's going to be really, really fun. And I can't wait to see what this year has in store for us. So thank you guys for listening. And if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can find it, or if you want to find the podcast, rather, you can find us on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at I Can Steal That. 
Uh, we're also on Patreon at I Can Steal That if you want to help support the show financially a little bit. Uh, we did have three people uh, sign up for it this week. So thank you so much to Dave, Miranda, and Bob. Anyways, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. We will be back next week with a brand new topic, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And also, like, reach out if you want stickers. Like, we had some really cool ones made. I'll send them to you. Our Patreon subscribers get those automatically. But if you just want a sticker, let me know. I'll send you a sticker. Thank you guys so much. This has been I Can Steal That.